coworker said to me, we don't have a problem with working. The problem is that we don't get to go home. How do you call your husband and say, I'm not coming home? That's what our lives are like right now. They treat us like animals. You would think that once it gets on the belt and it comes down to conveyor, well, all you gotta do is just put it in a container and wrap it up and put it in a box and send it out to distribution and send it to the store. Well, guess what? It takes an awful lot more than that. They worked so hard through that pandemic and they made this company a record profit. And I mean, an obscene profit. And then to thank them for that, they gave them a $300 bonus check. $300. How many Oreos is that? I need, I need somebody to break <laughs> that down for me. <laughs> Fair trade gives the producer a voice to speak up. We got the money, we have the uh, bodies, we can stand up, we can protest anywhere or go support people that's been done wrong in the workforce. But yeah. we, we don't, and it's, it's just scary how powerful we are, but until we get back together and more united, more solidarity, it just won't happen. Liz Schuler and I are, are truly a team. We're gonna run the Federation as a team. And you know, we're the conventional team, and these are our conventional times, so look for us to do some unconventional things to move this labor movement forward. The Vancouver Sun sent its Society Pages reporter, who noted the presence of, quote, a large section of local trades and labor union members who turned out in full force. There was hardly a dress suit or evening frock in the whole Empress Theater. Welcome to Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, where we present some highlights from a few of our more than 100 shows here on the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can find them all at laborradionetwork.org. On this week's show, We feature three reports on the strike by Nabisco workers, which spread this week to five states across the country. We'll hear from The Rick Smith Show, The Checkout, which is a brand new member of the network, and Your Rights at Work. Then, from the For a Better World podcast, another new network member, we'll hear about the importance and benefits of having fair trade in cacao farms in Cote d'Ivoire, as they deal with Nestle. On My Labor Radio, UAW member D'Amico Stocker talks about partisanship between union members and the current state of organizing. And we'll meet Fred Redmond, the new Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO, on America's Workforce Radio. We wrap up this week's show with the story of how the musical Pins and Needles came to Vancouver, B.C. in September 1938 from On the Line, Stories of B.C. Workers. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlot. Here's the show. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, members of the BCTGM Local 42 out on strike today in Atlanta. Uh, that means now uh, the Nabisco workers in Atlanta who went out today will join those who went out in Portland, those who went out in Aurora, Colorado, those who went out in Richmond, Virginia, and Chicago all tonight are on strike against Nabisco. And look, this is something I've been saying should have happened 20 years ago. We should have Workers should have taken a stand as companies were shipping jobs overseas and, and down to Mexico and destroying working conditions. This is something that should have happened decades ago. And gr- fortunately, there's an opportunity and the, the workers are saying, you know, we've had enough of it. 
and here to share some thoughts on just how bad it is and what's going on. I've asked Alex Press to come talk with us. Alex is a staff writer over at Jacobin Magazine. Alex, th thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for having me on. So tonight we got five facilities for Nabisco out on strike. Uh, the most recent Atlanta, why? Yeah, so that's a distribution center for Nabisco just outside of Atlanta. They walked off the job too. And this is because contract negotiations are ongoing and dragging on. These are pattern agreements. So they're identical contracts for each of these different locations across the country. And the company is actually Mondela's uh, International. That's what produces the Nabisco snacks that everyone's familiar with, Oreos, Chips Ahoy, Nutter Butter. And so they are sick of the concessions that the company is proposing. And as you mentioned, started in Portland on August 10th, workers walked off the job and it's quickly spread across the country. Now, this isn't just Nabisco now. I go back to the Oreo for several years ago. I haven't bought a bag of Oreos. I can't tell you how long, simply because of how bad they, the workers have been treated in Chicago and Philadelphia and other places as they close down plants. Now they close down plants in, in New Jersey. Uh, and I think also in, in Atlanta as well, if I'm not mistaken. This is finally, I think, people going enough, enough of the poor working conditions, enough of the poverty wages, but also enough of the job loss. Yeah. And that's the thing is, though, these I think the similarity these workers share across these locations is that they're coming out of the pandemic, which is a really important context for all the stuff that you're seeing and will see going forward in the next year or so, is that people have been pushed to the brink. So in food production industry at the manufacturing level, you know, workers have been working so hard through the pandemic. You didn't often see anything about it because these weren't the sort of what was considered the essential workers, right? These weren't necessarily healthcare workers, but you know, snacking is up in the United States. We're all stuck inside, right, during the pandemic. And so these companies have been pushing their workers and they haven't been hiring new people. So workers at Nabisco, just like people at Frito-Lay, for example, at the recent strike and all sorts of places that don't even have unions are being forced into overtime. So they're working 80 hour weeks. That's what people in Chicago, for example, were saying is that they're working 80 hour weeks and they won't put up with it. As you mentioned, in Chicago, they also have this history that the, Nabis the Nabisco plant there on the south side of Chicago is this institution in the community. It pays almost $30 an hour. It's one of the few places to make a living wage on the south side of Chicago. A ton of black workers, right? This is a really important institution in the community. And in 2016, Nabisco offered them a really horrible ultimatum which was accept what was basically a 60% cut in pay and benefits or accept mass layoffs. And of course the workers refused. That's a ridiculous question. 60% cut in your pay is just impossible. And so Nabisco laid off some 500 workers and did build up its production facilities in Mexico. Now I think it's important to note because it's, it's not a question necessarily of like nationalism here. Mexican workers get paid so little because they're subject pretty much faux unions. The company chooses what union to enforce a contract with and the workers have a lot of trouble organizing there and that's how they end up getting paid so little. The union BCTGM that represents Nabisco workers has been in touch to some extent with those workers in Mexico but again like this the amount of strength that's needed to combat this sort of offshoring of jobs is just very far from where these workers are at right now. The pandemic hasn't made these things earlier these things easier and yet these workers they weren't necessarily the ones that we we applauded as the here frontline heroes and, and essential but they were uh, for you know like it or not the snacks and the things the, the food, the prepared foods that came out help people get through the last year and a half, whether we want to admit it or And part of the tension here is that, and this was true when I talked to people at Frito-Lay, the workers there who went on strike last month, was they see that their management gets to go home to their families or their management has air conditioning, whereas the factory shop floor is hot. 
and they feel this sense of tension. Our bosses are safe. Our bosses are not worried. Our bosses are not stressing to the point of destroying their lives. And here we are just doing this for the sake of producing snacks. So it gets to you. It's not surprising that we're seeing these strikes happen now. It's the ultimate which side are you on. In any one of these moments, you have to look at who's on which side. It's the ultimate. Do you see the boss with his feet up on the desk in the air conditioner or worse yet at home via Zoom parking out orders? It's not hard to see which who's on which side. Right. So I spoke to some one of the workers in Chicago who's on strike and those workers in Chicago joined the strike late Thursday last week. So August 19th. So they were the sort of biggest shop recently to join the strike. And one of the workers said to me, we don't have a problem with working. The problem is that we don't get to go home. How do you call your husband and say, I'm not coming home? That's where our lives are like right now. They treat us like animals you know, treat us like humans, treat us the way you want to be treated. And they, and she said, we see that management is home with their families when we're working overtime. It's impossible not to see that we're being treated differently, even as companies like Nabisco say, we're all one big family. That's not how family treats each other. And so people have been pushed to the brink. Right. And fortunately, yeah, they're on strike and it's 24-7. The picket line is set up. Alex Press, I appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Welcome to the checkout. We have Lisa Gregory, the international rep for the East Central region of BCTGM, Local 358, and Carl Miller, a Local 358 production worker. Really appreciate you folks making time to uh, talk with us today. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Tell us Uh, a bit about what you do on the line, Carl. I don't think a lot of our audience understands when you say you work in a bakery, what that means. uh, Okay, I work particularly on line six, which is chocolate chip. And what happens there is that the, the product is started in mixing, and then it's sent down to baking, which is ovens and all. And all these shiftings are monitored and manufactured by expertise of the co-workers that are running the machines there mm-hmm. in order to, to present the product the public is seeing. It gets down to packing. I have to be in packing. Now, in packing, you would think that once it gets on the belt and it comes down to conveyor, well, all you got to do is just put it in a container and wrap it up and put it in a box and send it out to distribution and send it to the stores. Well, guess what? It takes an awful lot more than that. Okay, it takes a lot of teamwork. It takes a lot of gauging as the quality of the product uh, that we're sending out to our consumers. also takes the expertise of... um, uh, co-workers working together in order to reduce uh, BNR and increase uh, productivity as far as production online. All these things require an expertise in each and every station that the product goes through. Mm-hmm. And we try to do it to the best of our abilities. And we are in a form of rotation so that everybody experiences in the department a different station that enhances uh, us getting the quality and the product to distribution to be distributed. That's amazing. So why don't you guys tell us a bit about the organizing at the uh, Hearthside facility, which is, I believe, where where you guys work. Hearthside is a manufacturer of cereal and granola and other baked goods. And, you know, not only, um, you know, over, you know, recently, but over the last couple of decades, as this has been, you know, ongoing campaign and tell us a bit about what that's been like. Yeah. Um, so in the last 20 years, we've had three campaigns 
And employees at Hearthside have, have reached out every time and said, hey, look, we, you know, we need help. We want to join the union. Conditions are, are bad here. They're, they're treated poorly. There are around 1,200 employees, very high turnover rate. Um, and any time that we've had a campaign there, which like you said, we just had a recent one, which was our closest one yet. Um, but they, uh, they run a vicious anti-union campaign. So immediately they hire union busters that come in and they, they are in the plant 24 seven. They intimidate, they try to scare people about the right to organize. If there are undocumented workers in there, they threaten them with deportation. Um, they tell people they're gonna be fired. You know, they, they threaten their livelihoods and mm -hmm. you know, they hold captive audience meetings, everything. I mean, they pull out, <laughs> they pull out all the good tricks, right? And they just lay it on really thick and it really does, it, it scares employees, but you know, they, they make a ton of product for Mondelez as well. So this is very mm -hmm. connected right now with how they're treated. And they make about half of the, half of the wages that, that our union members make here to make the same product. And that's, that's uh, what Mondelez wants to do. So Mondelez outsources to, to Hearthside in order to save yes. labor costs. Yep. Yes, Earl, it's all corporate greed. That's, that's bottom line what it is. But the, the, the part that gets me as I was talking to Lisa is that the constitution says in the preamble, it says we, the American people, in order to form a more perfect union, I thought that the employees and management were working together to form a more perfect union. Injustice, yep. right? Injustice, right? For us, in order to what? Serve the people. This country, the whole, the whole ideology of America is you serve. Well, Mondelez doesn't follow that rule, but Hearthside, yeah. um, they, you know, it, the, the way they treat them, it's, there were so many stories that came out of there. And with the importance of the PRO Act right now, we actually had an employee from there, Gracie Heldman from Hearthside. She had been, I believe she's a 33 year employee at Hearthside. And she just testified, I believe last month before the uh, Senate Labor and Pensions Committee. Wow. Tell her story. And if you didn't, if you didn't tear up when you were watching it, then, you know, I don't know what's wrong with you. We send you our you know, deepest support and solidarity from the checkout radio. Um, and if there's anything else that we can do, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm asking our, our listeners, our audience, when we post this is tweet at Mondelez. <laughs> Send yeah. some social media their That's way the message. too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be posting this all over my social channels too. So we'll get there. Right, we really appreciate the time, Errol. Thank you, Errol. Appreciate thank it. Thank you so much, folks, and best of luck. All right, thank you. This is a public Welcome, your rights at work. Chris Garlick and Ed Smith here. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. It's over 100 Labor Radio podcast shows just like this one. If you like it, check it out, laborradionetwork.org. Our guests for this first segment are Lisa Gregory. She's East Central Regional Representative for the BCTGM. That stands for Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union, and Deanna Forrester, who is president of the Metro Washington Labor Council. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. 
So, Lisa, let's start with you. The Nabisco strike, it began August 10th in Portland, Oregon. It's now spread across the country. Uh, Nabisco workers in Richmond went out on strike August 16th, and other locations include Aurora, Colorado, Chicago, Illinois, and Norcross, Georgia. Now, these are the folks who make, I got to say, some of my favorite cookies, Oreos, Chips Ahoy, Fig Newtons, lots of other delicious Nabisco snacks, yummy things. So, Lisa, you got to tell us what sparked this strike. Well, it really all started at the uh, national negotiation table. Um, You know, this company had a a record year in 2020 through the pandemic, right? As many snack makers and all these comfort foods, like you said, your favorites, right? Oh, yeah. They sat at home on their couches. They ate Oreos, they ate Ritz, they had Chips Ahoy, all the good stuff. And uh, then they came to the table after closing two more of our U.S. bakeries just this June, and they wanted concessions right across the board. You know, that we aren't asking for anything but a fair contract, um, you know, just a wage increase that our members deserve. Um, and they came and they asked for a, a cut to their overtime premiums, um, an alternative work schedule to take them off of their traditional 40-hour, you know, eight-hour day, and changes to their health care. You know, the list goes on. And it just, you know, it's angered a lot of people and they've had it and it was their line in the sand. So they decided this was their time to stand up together and fight. And that's exactly what they've done coast to coast. This is just outrageous, you know, for them to, to rake in the profits, you know, during a pandemic and then turn around and the very workers who got them through that and made them that money. Ed Smith, I know you're brimming with questions. Over to you. One of the things I was reading about is really the sense of overwork. Um, among the workers that, uh, in part, as a result of the pandemic, workers were cranking out more uh, product, um, but also cranking out more work hours. And from what I understood, people have eight-day, eight-hour shifts, but that's not the reality. Tell me about that impact on kind of like day-to-day work, how that's impacted the members, and how um, how significant is that part of um, the demands for the union? So real quick, we have 425 members at that facility, and it's a right-to-work state here in Virginia, which we know, and we only have one person that has been in there working. Everybody else is out on that line. So that's wow. an incredible feat. Yep. Congrats. Yeah, shout out to them. It's fantastic. Um, you know, so they do. They have a traditional uh, eight-hour, five-day-a-week schedule. And that's also one of the things they want to change, of course. But through the pandemic, you know, they worked 16 hours, seven days a week. And that was not a rare thing. That was that was the norm. And, you know, their thanks for that, obviously, like I said, at the table was come and ask to take everything away from them. And it's on top of that, it's, health, you know, asked to change health care and it's their overtime premiums. It's all of that. And they worked so hard through that pandemic and they made this company a record profit. And I mean, an obscene profit. And then just to put it in perspective, to thank them for that, they gave them a $300 bonus check. $300. How many Oreos is that? I need, I need somebody to break that down <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the business model that Mondelez is. That's, I think it's what they want. I'm just going to be honest. I don't, I don't think they care at all about their employees. You know, this battle kind of started with Mondelez, really got, got throttled up a little bit in 2016. National negotiations were at the table and they came and the first thing they wanted was the pension. You know, those pensions are earned. Our members deserve those pensions. That belongs to them. They have worked hard to keep to earn that money for their future to have a comfortable retirement. Um, so we got to impasse and they implemented, they took that pension. 
And ever since then, we, we were not under contract. So it's been a rough, you know, five years with this company. And it's just been a constant battle at every turn. So this was the breaking point. Before we go out, Lisa, um, so there's an interesting boycott situation going on. There's not a call for a boycott uh, of Nisbisco in general, but there is actually like a five-year boycott that's been going on over made in Mexico Nabisco products because of Mondelez moving plants, uh, you know, good union, you know, American jobs down to Mexico. Here's my question, right? So I'm in the cookie. I'm looking at all my Nabisco products. How do I know which ones are made in Mexico and which ones are made in the USA? So on the code date, there's going to be an MM or an MS in it. And those are all Mexican made products out of one of their two facilities. So if it doesn't have that, then it's one of ours. But, you know, with that with that same thought, we aren't running anything right now. So feel free to leave it on the shelf. There you go. All right. So, uh, all right. That's that's our official stand on on, uh, on this one is there's plenty of other cookies out there right now and snacks. And, uh, you know, just stay away from the Nabisco for the moment. That's, that's leave, not it the, the leave it on the shelf. Leave it on the shelf. New t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. See you next week. Take care. Every single thing we wear, eat, and use impacts real people and shapes our world. Behind all of it, there is a story, one you might not always expect to hear. From Fair World Project, I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. Over the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about the Goliath of the food world. To get us started, Anna Canning, Fairworld Project's campaign manager, is going to delve into the chocolate industry and some recent events that means a lot for all of us working for a more just food system. So, we talk about Nestle a fair amount. Nestle's Kit Kats were fair trade certified. That's past tense now. A few months back, they announced they'd be dropping fair trade and switching to Rainforest Alliance certification. And so in this series, we're going to delve into that a little bit. To start with, we reached out to Frank Komen and Fortin Blay of the Ivorian Fair Trade Network. They work directly with the farmers growing the cocoa that went into these Kit Kat bars. Shortly after Nestle's decision to drop fair trade was released, they came out with a strong statement saying that Nestle, quote, stopping the relationship with fair trade is to silence our voices as fair trade producers, end quote. My conversation with Franck and Fortin took place online and was translated from French. The voice you'll hear is not their own, but is the voice of the interpreter. While Nestle promotes their own cocoa plan, it focuses mostly on getting farmers to increase their productivity, to grow more in hopes of making ends meet. And Rainforest Alliance? Their frog label has farmers focus on a checklist of to-dos. Fortin makes a big distinction here between both of those, and Fairtrade standards focus on transparency, equity, and human development, as he described it. There is a minimum price guarantee with Fairtrade that doesn't exist with Rainforest. But the premium for Fairtrade is higher than the one for Rainforest. This premium is a small additional amount that a buyer pays per pound or in the case of cocoa, per metric ton. On one side, the producer has control of the premium is used for, but on the other side, that is decided by chocolatiers, uh, by the industrial people. With fair trade, it's the producer who can 
who has the control of how to spend the money. And this premium that 14 describes, this is a small amount that goes on top of the price paid for the crop. The current Rainforest Alliance premium setup makes it optional for buyers to pay that premium. In the fair trade system, there are a couple of these premiums. So in the time that you have been getting the fair trade price and the fair trade premium, can you tell me a little about some of the projects that the cooperatives have done with those premiums? Really? They built school in villages and health centers also. They were able to, to dig wells to bring water to people. They were able to train people for certain trades. What sort of trades? Training for farmers to do uh, what was needed in order to change the type of crops they would grow. That's something they were able to do. When the farmer can decide what to do with the money, he puts his heart into it and it's more long last. And when he's involved in all the decisions, it helps the farmer to feel valued and important. And when you look at that, it feels like a beggar. The producer needs to be heard. He doesn't need people to come and impose things on him. Because it's important because what he does is a trade. It seems pretty obvious, right? If you want something to last, people need to be invested in it. It needs to be something that matters in their lives. But the number of corporate social responsibility programs or labels that are not set up this way is staggering. What Frank's describing here really mirrors colonialism. There are centuries of precedence for European companies, governments, standard-setting organizations, all of them, taking this role of deciding what would be best for people living here in Côte d'Ivoire. These companies have created the problem of cocoa farmers living in poverty by treating them like a source for cheap ingredients. And now they're repeating that pattern, setting the terms of what gets called ethical, and once again, cutting out the actual people and communities. To be clear, Franck doesn't quite put it on those terms. We need to make the producer a production tool, but he needs to remain a human person, a human being. The fair trade gives the producer a voice to speak up. Uh, we really want to be allowed to continue to work with fair trade. And with this system, the producer can pass on his training to the next generation. So if there is not a next generation to follow up on the work, there is no sust sustainability. This week, we've taken a look at cocoa and the bigger picture of the people who grow it and systems that bring it to our supermarkets. Join us next time as we tackle the next ingredient in a Kit Kat bar, sugar. And now, here's your next episode of My Labor Radio. All right, thanks for joining us, everybody. On this edition of My Labor Radio, we're going to meet and get to know a little bit better a very involved union member. Let me introduce you to D'Amico Stockard. He's a UAW member, and I met him several years ago when he transferred to the General Motors plant here in Fort Wayne. He's been through multiple plants, I think six of them, but he's a Flint guy. He started in Flint, Michigan, and ends up here in Northeast Indiana. So everybody has a work-life story that we can tell. Some of them are very abusive, 
depending on where they worked or who they worked for. Here's the interview I did in late July of 2021 with D'Amico Stockard from United Auto Workers 2209. If Trump did anything, he really connected with a bunch of our members yeah. on a really like tough guy level. Oh, hit him, give him a rough treatment when you put him in the backseat of the cop car, or punch that right. guy out. I don't know that, what they were lacking or missing, but somehow he connected to them with that, that authority stupid speech, rhetoric. That authority of the speech really um, reaches people. That aggressiveness, people really dig that. Even though that the message is wrong, sometimes mm. the narrative is wrong, but that just grabs people's ears and their hearts and don't let them go. Yeah. We had a discussion, me and another guy were talking recently, and he thought guns was a big part of it, too. Yeah, they capitalize on that and other key issues that just divide working class people. And, and well, if we can just wrestle that back and get us all back on one page, mm. we'd be so powerful. If we yeah. can just get together and whenever there's like a wrong for any kind of thing labor related, we got the money, we have the uh, bodies, we can stand up, we can protest anywhere or go support people that's been done wrong in the workforce. But yeah. we, we don't. And, and it's, it's just scary how powerful we are. But until we get back together and more united, more solidarity, it just won't happen. Let abortion and guns separate us, you know. Very true. Along those lines, I've talked to many people here from the community who have nothing to do with our workplace or union in any way. And I bring that up in some manner of saying, well, you don't understand the solidarity that we have or that we do. And they're like, yeah, I don't care. I don't need that. But right. that's that narrative that the Republicans have continued to throw is that you can do this yourself, the rugged individual. You don't mm. need government on your back. You don't need anybody. It's all about you. It's all about you yourself, your own personal responsibility. It is about you. But if you multiply you by a thousand other people, that makes you that much more. Right. It makes us all that much more powerful. And, and yeah. that's the message we got to get across to people. And I think our labor union and any unions, we should be supporting people that's we should be supporting people that's been done wrong or wrongly fired or terminated or any other way. And mm -hmm. that would make people understand better the power of being a sticking together with the solidarity. Right. These guys are here to help. Yeah. We've talked about this many times too. I'm just a high school graduate. How many years of college did you do? I did two actually. One, like one and a half. Yep. Yep. And I've taken a couple of classes, but I don't carry a degree with me, but I don't think I can't hang with anybody who's got a doctorate. PhD. I'll hang out with any academic. I'll hang out with all those folks. What I've got yes. though, what I've learned is that a lot of those folks who do those things really well, miss something and don't do other things really well. That's why they need the mechanic. That's why they need the people to assemble things. They're Absolutely. very good at what they do, but we're very good at what we do too. We can't lose. Right. Like my brother's like that. He carries a degree in everything and I'm changing his oil for him or I'm helping him do carpet or, or replace a window. Cause those are things I've learned to do on my own, you know? somebody like that too and i don't have any yeah. problem helping them out because they're very good people who can give me insight into other things so we got to use it's that yin and yang thing which is important there's reasons for us we drive the nation all of us we don't always have a degree but you know what we do we do well we have to be respected for that absolutely yes, yes. do you think we're getting more people involved in saying and using the word union than we ever have i think so i, I think it's grown slightly I think people are understanding that it's necessary to have a union or better protections for workers. I think mm -hmm. I see that coming. Like right now, you can't, it's, it's people hiring everywhere. I see signs on a corner for jobs hiring because people are like, you know what, you're not paying me enough. I'm not going to do this right. anymore. And right now, I think it's time for us as a labor union to step up and, and, and grab these people's hand and hold them. Hey, look, if we can organize you, you can even get more money or, or better compensation. It's not about us. It's more about you. I think right, right now is the time to strike. People are hiring left and right. It's crazy. I've never seen this in the last 15 years. What this whole thing's done is 
pandemic has flipped everything on its head. And so yes. it's a different ball game now. And I think yes. that's a serious time where labor can really step up. I agree. It's, this is our time. We're going to do some perfect time. And, you know, people yeah. walking away from jobs, they're changing jobs. They're looking for more pay. They're, they're looking for health care, better health care. They're looking for better everything. Uh, yeah. yeah. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Big shoes to fill, but they're filled. Leadership changes at the AFL-CIO. I was so happy to hear on Friday that Fred Redman, currently the International Vice President for Human Affairs for the Steelworkers, was named as Secretary-Treasurer of the 12.5 million member labor federation. Fred is a decades-long union activist with a proven commitment to both negotiating good contracts and advancing civil and human rights, including through his recent work as chair of the AFL-CIO Task Force on Racial Justice. Let's go to Washington right now, and I have to say, number one, congratulations, Mr. Fred Redman. Thanks a lot, Flash. I really appreciate it. Fred, the position of Secretary-Treasurer, can you explain to our listeners what what that's going to entail? Sure. The position of Secretary-Treasurer is the second highest position within the AFL-CIO, and the Secretary-Treasurer have financial and fiduciary responsibilities regarding the AFL-CIO finances. Within the uh, constitution of the AFL-CIO, is a very strong check and balance system of the finances between the president's office and the secretary treasurer's office. And the secretary treasurer's office really assists the president in the execution of her duties. But the key responsibility is the the responsibility over the finances of the FLCL. I know your head's spinning right now, Fred, but you got to have a game plan of what you'd like to accomplish between now and in and June, at least that part. Um, do you have any idea where you might be going? Maybe you could run down a couple of things that you'd like to, to get sure. handled. The number one priority for the labor movement flash at this time is the PRO Act, the uh, Right to Organize Act. The uh, PRO Act is the top of organized labor's agenda. And I'm proud to announce that last week, after meetings with Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer, the, the PRO Act will be changed to the Richard Trump PRO Act, which I think is a testament to the work that Richard Trump did in terms of trying to change labor law, uh, to have labor law reform in this country, which we haven't seen a change in the labor laws in over 40 years. Our, our number one focus will be to pass the PRO Act. And then to start building toward the 2022 midterm elections. Look, we have to make sure that we're coalescing and starting to build a a political program to make sure that we increase our margins in both the House and the Senate if we're going to be successful getting this 
president's agenda through, which is a pro-labor agenda. So we have a lot of work to do. And the historical nature of this is I am just so honored to be working with the first uh, female president of the American labor movement in Leah Shula. She's smart. She's articulate. And she's tenacious. She's, she's going to do very well. She's a very strong voice for organized labor. And this is just an exciting time. And they tell me that a African-American never held the position of secretary-treasurer. So I'm, I'm just honored to be holding the highest position that African-American have ever held in the American labor movement. We're an unconventional team, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And Liz Shuler and I are truly a team. We're going to run the Federation as a team. And and, and like I said to Liz, you know, we're an unconventional team, and these are unconventional times, so look for us to do some unconventional things to move this labor movement forward. One more question. I know you're busy here. Organizing. We have seen a huge uptick in organizing, and you mentioned political organizing and making sure we get the right people in office. That's important, but I can only assume, maybe you can elaborate, as far as moving forward into next year and the years after that. Let's just continue the trend that we're on right now. And I think the pandemic showed that. Wasn't that pretty much the case there, Fred? Well, the pandemic definitely showed it. It expressed the workers. First of all, the value of workers became evident. It was workers who uh, really kept this country going during the pandemic. Our brave nurses who, who, who went to work every day, our firemen, our police, our people in the factories continued to produce the products that was necessary to sustain this country during the pandemic. So there was an uptick in, in organizing. And let me just say this, organizing is going to be a key priority of this federation going forward. We need to pass the PRO Act to make it the environment more conducive for those workers who want to organize into a union to organize without the threat of intimidation from their employer. And then we need to address this issue of this right to work, which was really created during the Jim Crow area in order to divide workers in this country. So we're going to be calling together the affiliates. We're going to have a very serious discussion very soon. Okay, very early in this administration, unorganized workers who served a vital role during the pandemic and will play a vital role in terms of ending this pandemic. So organizing is definitely a priority of this administration. All right, my friend, you take care. I am so happy for you. All right, Flash. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com. Welcome to another edition of On the Line, a podcast that aims to shine a light on British Columbia's rich labor heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. This month, we bring you the remarkable story of Pins and Needles, one of the most unlikely hit Broadway musical reviews ever. Not only was the show funded and created by a union, every one of the singers, dancers, and performers 
were members of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, who had low-paying factory jobs in the sweatshop textile industry. And, in the fall of 1938, Pins and Needles came to Vancouver for two evening shows and a matinee. Here, as elsewhere, audiences were enthralled. They couldn't get enough of the singing, dancing members of the ILGWU and their pointed songs that were both catchy and progressive. The union decided to take it on the road, both as a moneymaker and as a reward for its hard-working cast, few of whom had travelled anywhere beyond New York. Leaving a replacement cast for the ongoing Broadway production, the original troupe toured major cities across the United States and Canada. Sometimes they attracted protests by those objecting to its anti-fascist, pro-worker politics. In Montreal, the show had to be placed under police protection after a gang of fascists tried to disrupt it for lampooning Hitler and Mussolini. There was no such problem in Vancouver. The first big musical review to play the city since the start of the Depression, its three performances took place September 19th and 20th, 1938 at the large, now demolished, Empress Theatre at the corner of Gore and East Hastings. The cast was billed as, quote, just plain, simple, common, ordinary, everyday men and women who work hard for their living, unquote. On opening night, a capacity crowd packed the theatre. The Vancouver Sun sent its Society Pages reporter, who noted the presence of, quote, a large section of local trades and labour union members, who turned out in full force to support this novel theatrical undertaking of their colleagues from south of the line, unquote. There was hardly a dress suit or evening frock in the whole Empress Theatre, the Vancouver Sun added. With many in the audience tilting leftwards, no wonder one of the biggest hits in a show that was full of them was the fun song, Doing the Reactionary.
Viewer Stanley Bly was full of praise. The rendition of Doing the Reactionary was by the Hudson Delange Orchestra featuring Mary McHugh. This has been yet another look back at one of those union blasts from the past that should be much better known. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on the line. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast. Weekly, a roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 100 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon, Melanie Smith, and me. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. We really hope you enjoy the show, and we hope it inspires you to explore the shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We're up to 135 across the country and around the world. Ordinary folks working hard to air the voices of workers. If you like the show, please help spread the word about this amazing and growing world of labor radio and podcast shows. Like the show and share it on social media. Sonic Solidarity. Thanks very much. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active. And of course, stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.